Our scripture reading this afternoon is out of Luke's gospel, the sixth chapter. We're going to read from verse 37 to verse 49, which is the end of the chapter. And in particular, we have that idea before us that the believer, the child of God, the one who is justified, produces good works. That engrafted believers do bear good fruit. And there is something of that in Luke chapter 6, page 1025 in your pew Bibles, Luke chapter 6. And as you have your Bibles open there, let's ask the Lord for a blessing upon the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, speak now to us by your word and by your spirit, so that the darkness, Lord, within might be shattered, might be defeated by the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and that we might stand in that light and live by it each and every day that you give us opportunity on this earth to live. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke 6, beginning at verse 37 to the end of the chapter, hear the word of God. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, and when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Thus for the reading of God's holy word. Then to Lord's Day 24 we turn. Lord's Day 24. And we're going to recite the answer to these three questions and answers in Lord's Day 24. We've just heard from Lord's Day 23 about that glorious doctrine of justification, that by faith we are right in Christ before God and heirs to everlasting life. And now we're asked this, why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness? Because the righteousness which can surpass God's judgment 
must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not merited, it is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No. It is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. This the church does believe. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, it doesn't take much study of church history to understand why it is that the authors of the catechism immediately after teaching that wonderful good news about justification hasten on very quickly to make sure that we are grounded, that we are focused on what it is that is being taught us in that word from the Lord, from His Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, It is the natural inclination of all men to forget this, to fall away from this, and to fall into the mentality of self-righteousness. That is the easiest position, condition for any of us to believe, to accept, and to live by, that we are in ourselves able somehow to achieve success, standing before God, to believe that we are in ourselves able to please God. And we are indeed able to please God, just not in ourselves. That, of course, is the key. It is in Christ. We who are in Christ please God, not by virtue of what we have done, but by virtue of Christ's saving work in us. Thus, even our good works are sanctified by God in Christ and made pleasing to Him, not by anything we've done, but by His work. And we need to keep that ever focused, ever before our face, ever clear in our minds that our life may be lived not in the fear, in the uncertainty of of a false doctrine that causes us to to have to earn our place before the Lord, but rather that we might live by the comfort, by the confidence, and by the joy of knowing that we are eternally secure in Christ. That, of course, is the difference between these systems of doctrine. The one gives joy and comfort, gives confidence and thanksgiving. The other gives uncertainty, doubt, and creates fear in our hearts. And you'll know, of course, that the catechism wants us to live by comfort, wants us to live with confidence, wants us to be certain that our lives are eternally secure in Jesus Christ. And so it says to us some things that may at first seem very difficult for us to hear, and may cause questions in our minds to, 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 to rise. Right? Beginning with the very first question in Lord's Day 24, why can't our, right, our good works rather be our righteousness before God or at least be part of our righteousness? And then it reminds us that even our best works are stained in sin. The Catechism has rightly understood from the Word of God, as we all ought to understand, 
that if you're going to give something to God, now think in your imagination, you might say of bringing an offering or bringing some kind of work to the Lord and saying, Lord, is this good enough for you? Does this satisfy you? That God will judge that work, will judge that sacrifice, will judge that activity by the standard of his law. He will take the measuring stick, you might say, the uh, level. You know how uh, construction workers will use a level to make sure that the wall that they're putting up is level. Well, uh, this level, the Lord that he puts on your good works, is the level of his law, of his righteousness. And he demands perfect obedience to that. And the catechism is right when it says that none of our best works can even come close to that standard. Every time the Lord measures, every time the Lord puts the level on our good works, it's always out of kilter. There's always something wrong. And that may be difficult for us to hear, but it is the repeated and persistent word of the Lord in Scripture. You think of what Isaiah 64 verse 6 says. These are familiar and famous words. Uh, that are difficult for us to hear and cause us to wonder, well, then what's the point? Why should we even bother trying? Listen to what Isaiah 64, verse 6 says. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. All our righteous deeds, even the best that we do, they're like, they're like the, the, the coveralls that the farmer was wearing when he fell into the manure pit. And now they stink. They're like a polluted garment. There is nothing that we do that pleases God in itself, in ourselves. Paul makes that point so very clearly. We've heard that so many times from Romans chapter 7 where he talks about the good that he wants to do but doesn't do and the evil that he doesn't want to do but that he does. Or you think of those very encouraging words from 1 John chapter 1 which remind us that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. But just before that, it says these difficult words, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Or you think of James's words in James chapter 3. He says, we stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Not many of us, he says, should become teachers because we cannot speak the truth. There are so many passages, so many portions of God's Word that teach us this profound and this rather difficult, maybe even discouraging word that in the end, nothing we can do is good enough. Nothing we can do passes the standard of righteousness in God's law. Do you do everything by faith? Do you love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength? Are your thoughts, words, and deeds utterly devoted to the blessing of others? Do you glorify God in every aspect of your being? Yes, even in your eating and drinking Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. No, we must acknowledge and accept the judgment of the Scriptures and of our confession here in Lord's Day 24 and acknowledge that even our best works are imperfect and stained with sin and that nothing we offer to the Lord in ourselves is able to live up to the standard of His righteousness 
and therefore cannot be used to increase our standing, cannot be used to satisfy God's judgment, cannot be used to earn our place before the Lord in any way. Which is a difficult word to hear and one which challenges our very concept of our relationship with God and with each other. Because if this is true, as the Word of God clearly teaches it is, what's the point? Why even try to live the Christian life? I mean, again, imagine being told by your boss every day, not good enough. Maybe by your teacher or a parent. Maybe some of us can actually speak to that. And maybe there are some of us who, for reasons of pride, would say, well, I'll show you. And we try harder and harder and harder to get it right. But what if every day, no matter how well it's done, you're, you're told not very good, not good enough, not sufficient, do it again. Eventually, don't you think that you would give up? Don't you think that you would quit? Don't you think you'd say, well, there's no point. I can't possibly satisfy you. But the problem with that thinking, which is very natural and understandable, is that it perceives our relationship with God in the wrong way. It puts God in the docket. It puts God in the witness stand and says, you need to stand and defend yourself against our charges. After all, by by saying, what's the point? We are essentially saying that God may not be God. When we are saying that God's righteousness is too high, too exacting, too perfect, that He ought to lower His standard, He ought to let us slide with a few mistakes, that things shouldn't be so demanding, so tough. What we're saying is that God should cease being God and that He should instead change His character to accommodate our frailty, our failings. God, who is righteous and holy, God, who the Scripture reminds us does not abide the presence of sin. But we're saying to God, we can't be perfect, so you have to change. Somebody's got to change. It's not going to be us, so it's got to be you. Why should the Lord change the standard of His righteousness? Especially since He made us to be good and to obey Him in all things. God made us so that we could live up to the standard of righteousness. We could do exactly what He commands. We can live up to or could live up to His will and word in the beginning. We're the ones that poked out our eyes and now complain that we're blind. We're the ones that stuck the the sticks into our ears and complain now that we're deaf. In the end, it is not God who is at fault because we can't live up to His righteousness It is we who have embraced sin, who love sin, who love the things of sin. And yet our nature rebels at the thought that God's righteousness is so high and holy. And so we demand that God change. This is what human nature desires. This is what human nature demands. Look around us at the culture in which we live and see and understand how it expects everyone to accommodate the weak and the frail. They don't need to change. The society around them will change. You need to accommodate my failures, my flaws. Defund the police. 
Let's deal with these problems in other ways. The problem's not my fault. It's the system. It's the circumstance. The society we live in trumpets this very mentality. And our own hearts do. Think of those times when the teacher gives us a poor mark on a test. Or maybe the officer who pulls us over and gives us that ticket. Or our parents who maybe discipline us for coming home too late. Or some such thing. Then what do our hearts say? What do our minds say? What do our mouths say? Do we not blame them? Do we not say it's their fault? They got it out for me. They don't like me. It's not that I can't do it. It's that they're too tough. None of these excuses, or none of this rather excuses the failures of others, but it demonstrates that that our go-to when dealing with our problems in life is to blame, to blame others, including God, and to say, Lord, this is your fault. We put God on the back foot, and he is the first person we learn to gaslight. If we're not motivated to love and serve the Lord, despite all our failures and inability to live up to God's commands, well, that's not on the Lord, that's on us. We put ourselves in this position and cut our nose off to spite our face. We can't complain now how, whole, how hard it is to smell. And yet, despite all of that, beyond thought or imagination of men, the Lord even though we rejected Him, chose to send us His Son and die on the cross for our sins to cleanse us from all righteousness, unrighteousness and to bring to light life through the resurrected Lord and Savior. And when we are united to Christ by faith, we are clothed in a righteousness that covers all of our sins and made to stand so that we are before the face of God as though we'd never sinned or been sinners as though God were or as though we were as righteous before God as Jesus was for us a righteousness that is not our work that is not our decision that is not our will but is his and this ought to amaze us we ought to never forget that we deserve hell but are given heaven deserve judgment but have been given grace And so when it comes to living for the Lord, when it comes to being servants of our God, our joy should know no end. Our human nature desires to be validated and valued by God for the good that we think we're doing, but we're better off seeing the truth and putting our pride to death. When we turn from our pathetic attempts at proving our worth, we discover that there is profound blessing to be had in Jesus Christ. Indeed, the very Lord that we serve encourages us to give ourselves over to these things when he speaks to us in the scriptures of reward. Here's the second question and answer of Lord's Day 24. How can good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? There have been those in the history of the church who have heard these promises of reward in the scriptures, have heard those passages where God says that he will bless those who walk in the way of righteousness, and have used these passages as proof that we must be able, therefore, to do good. After all, if we couldn't do it, why would the Lord command us to? Or to put it another way, those passages of God speaking blessing to his people 
imply that God's people can, by their own choice, do things that are pleasing to God and satisfying to His righteousness. The thinking here is fairly simple to understand. If there is no benefit to doing good, if there's no personal benefit, why would we do it? Well, the benefit we gain may be personal satisfaction, it may be pride, it may be the experience or development of skills, it may be a more stable and secure life, it may be something more tangible like material success or marital success. But at the end of the day, if we're going to be asked to do something, we have to get something out of it. We even say that giving is its own reward in order to motivate us to do something. We recognize that we need a reward in order to do it. If we see no benefit to doing good work, if we only see cost, sacrifice, and surrender, we'll be willing to do it for a bit, but in the end, we're not going to be very motivated. We're going to say, what's in it for me? Because that's human nature. But the catechism says, oh, oh God does reward good works, that's true, but not, but not because he needs to motivate you in that way, not, not because he wants to convert his people to selfish servants who ask this, only this one question, what's in it for me? No, the Lord rewards his people with blessings without question, but he rewards them precisely because he is a generous, gracious, and good God. He loves to bestow upon his beloved children blessings upon blessings. The scriptures teach this in so many ways. You read through the Sermon on the Mount and you cannot but be impressed by the goodness of God towards his people. You cannot but see how God in his mercy blesses those who walk in the way of righteousness and of obedience and gratitude towards him. You think particularly of what the Lord says when he says, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. The Lord blesses his people with great, rich rewards. But there's more passages too. You think about the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 at verse 6. Right? Hebrews 11 uh, in verse 6, the writer says this, uh, speaking about faith and about the faith without which is it impossible to please God. For whoever must draw near to God must believe, he says, that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Oh yes, the scriptures do teach that the Lord rewards his people. Indeed, in the, just before that in 2 Timothy 4, the Apostle Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, also, not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing oh the lord does reward his people without question the lord is rich in his abundance towards those who love him in jesus christ but the lord doesn't reward us so that we become selfish servants always asking what's in it for me but rather so that we might stand amazed at how good he is towards all who trust in him Keep in mind these three vital truths that God does not need to bless us in this way. God does not need to bless us with rewards in order to motivate our good works. 
The Lord instead does so graciously because he wants to be known as the overflowing fountain of everything good. He wants to show us that he is the God on the pages of Scripture who is full of love and mercy. And third, that he is the God who blesses in Jesus Christ. God doesn't need to bless us in this way, but he shows his goodness and grace to us in Jesus Christ so that we might stand in awe of his mercy. The rewards of the Lord, the, the rewards that the Lord gives us are all expressions of his grace towards us in Jesus Christ. To remind us that whatever else the world might say to us about our God, he is good to all who trust in him. Now our human nature wants to twist this and wants to dominate this promise. If God rewards good works and if I've done this or that good work, then surely where's my reward? I should expect something. When it comes to rewards, we think we know how it should go, what we should be given. We think like those people in the parable of the vineyard that we should be paid more than some others because we've done more. Indeed, too often our frustration with God is that he's not dealing with us in the way that we want him to be. Precisely because our relationship with God gets twisted and turned inside out, we continue to want to exercise control over God. We want to demand that God satisfy our expectation, forgetting that he has loved us with a perfect love in Jesus Christ and that he has lifted us from the depths of sin so that we might live eternally with him and that we experience and enjoy the blessings of his grace as he encourages our walk with him, discovering a God and Father that is so wonderful and rich in his love that we can never end the blessings that he bestows upon us. No, in the end, if we're tempted to turn this blessing into some measure of gaining goodness from God, that, that if we think that we can turn this promise of God into a, a demand that we place upon him, a work that we require of him, then we fail to understand who God is and who we are. But when we see that God, like any father, any parent in this place, loves to bless his children in order to encourage them to carry on, then we see that these tokens of God's faithfulness bestowed upon us daily are witnesses of his love and reasons to serve him all the more. The real blessings of this life are found in God and in his gracious word to us when he says, well done, good and faithful servant. But there's a problem there is a problem in all of this that must be ultimately resolved because though we have thus far spoken of our need to be motivated by gratitude, that leaves at least the impression that being good, living the righteous life is really a choice that we have to make. But righteous living is not an option when it comes to the Christian life. This too is made clear on the pages of Scripture. This true is made clear in so many ways. Think of the parable of the wedding feast or the parable of the talents. Think about Jesus as he cursed the fig tree. Think about the book of James. The Bible makes clear that you must live a righteous life. You must do good works and you must walk in the way of faith and obedience. It's not only that we should be grateful. Yes, we should be grateful 
because of Jesus' work on our behalf, nor even because our Heavenly Father blesses us quite despite our deserving, though that is certainly true. It is that we must bear fruit to the glory of God. It is impossible, says the Catechism, not to. It is impossible for a Christian not to bear fruit. Indeed, so too is the Word of God. That's why we read from Luke chapter 6, where in the verses 43 through 45, we hear those familiar words concerning fruits and trees. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Or think about Jesus' words in John chapter 15 at verse 5, where Jesus in the upper room is speaking to his disciples and speaks about being the true vine and says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The word of God teaches that God's people all bear fruit. And this too is something that we experience and express in our lives. Look at the history of God's people, filled with some pretty dodgy characters, to be honest, yet remarkably transformed and used for the Lord. At lunch, we were talking at home about Jacob the liar, a very dodgy character indeed. Yet the Lord turned him and made him to be a glorious, dependent believer upon him who surrendered all in service to his king. Look at your own life and see how our thinking shifts, our words change, our passions alter, our spirits value new and better blessings. It is impossible for those who genuinely believe in Jesus Christ not to produce fruit. For not only does the Son clothe us and not only does the Father encourage us, but the Spirit you see dwells in us and unites us to Christ so that more and more we become like Him. So more and more we display the power of God at work in us by the indwelling Holy Spirit. As surely as the Spirit dwells in us, so surely must we progressively day by day sometimes more, sometimes less, bear good fruit to the glory of God. The fruit may still be rather bruised and may not appear to be the most appetizing so that we can't really pat ourselves on the back and say, look at how good we've become. But we can say, look at me, I'm bearing fruit to the glory of God. That is, we are not fruitless, for if we are fruitless, we are cut off. Oh no, you see, in the end, the Christian life is not one that is lived apart from the power of God in Jesus Christ. Those who are justified in Christ are also sanctified. And though those things are different, that is, though we are not justified because we are sanctified, that so often has been the error in the church. They have reverted to the, reversed rather the order of things so that those who live the good life They are the ones who can be confident they are justified. They are the ones who have earned justification before God. No, says the catechism, that's not it at all. We are justified in Jesus Christ entirely through faith in him so that by that faith we are united to the Christ who clothes us in his righteousness and makes us right before God for eternity. But that same God who accomplishes that work 
also works saving power in us so that we bear fruit to the triune God clothed in Christ and encouraged by the Father and inspired by the Spirit. Wherever, rather, we are on in that journey, and there are some who are mature branches here, there are some that are being pruned for greater growth, even as there are some that are just starting to bud so that they might bear fruit. Whatever the, wherever the, the, we are in that journey of spiritual development, when we by faith in Jesus Christ are united to him, we are no longer dry dead wood. We are no longer just useful for burning. We are rather living fruit bearing branches that are blessing and praising the gardener who has made us and who has blessed us with his power and his grace. Indeed, it is for this reason that we must always grieve when we meet those who know Christ, who claim Christ as Lord, but who show no signs in their lives of living for the Lord. That is why we must forever call to repentance and faith, those even within our own midst, who take the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, but who do not live the transformed life of salvation in Jesus Christ. For we cannot claim the blessings of Jesus Christ in parts and pieces and say we'll take this but we'll leave that. We would like the justifying power of God but we don't want the sanctifying grace of God. We want Jesus Christ as Savior but we don't want Jesus Christ as Lord. Oh no, says the catechism, that's impossible. That's impossible. Instead, we should always see that the Lord in his mercy does both clothing us in Jesus Christ and working in us so that more and more our lives are changed. And indeed, what a joy that is for God's people and for those who know the misery of sin, who know the burden and the brokenness of sin. For sin never blesses. Sin never bestows upon us any good thing. Our hate, our impatience, our frustration, our bitterness, our lust, our greed and pride, they do not bring us blessings. So we can rejoice that we have been given the Spirit of Christ by which we can put to death these things and bring to life the righteousness of Christ that we might be shaped more and more as image bearers of Jesus. We can rejoice that it is impossible for those who are united to Christ not to bear good fruit and can eagerly participate in the work of the Spirit, can keep in step with the Spirit as the Apostle reminds us. This ought to be indeed the great joy of every believer Each and every one of us who, having been dead in sin, have been made alive in Jesus Christ, ought to lay hold of that life and seek to bring to life that which the Lord has worked in us by his word and spirit, that in our Christian walk with God, we are not fruitless, but we are fruitful, bearing some 30, some 60, some 100-fold to the glory of our God and Father. Indeed, let us give thanks to the Lord. Let's praise his name for that. And let's give our lives to living for the Lord in service to him. And let's join in prayer before his throne. Shall we pray? Gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and for his saving power. We thank you that you work a salvation that is full and free so that we are indeed, O heavenly God and Father, perfectly redeemed, justified in Jesus Christ and sanctified by your Spirit. We pray, Heavenly God and Father, that you would help us to participate in that work, to joyfully bear fruit to the glory of your name, and to see, O Heavenly God and Father, 
that you are the gracious overflowing fountain of everything good. So bless us, we ask, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.